What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? Hello and welcome back to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, where this month we've got a very special treat in store for fans of Skylarking. My name is Mark Fisher and in this episode we'll be looking not only backwards but also forwards to Dear God, Old and New. More of that in due course, but to get you in the swing of things, let's have some listener-generated music. For the past few episodes, I've been challenging the musicians among you to write a song in response to something that has been said on the podcast. A conversation about playgrounds in XTC songs inspired Ed Stainsby to write Climbing Frame. An analysis of No Thugs in Our House gave David White the idea to write Still Got It. I let my toffee the name of the podcast led Gary Perkins to write What Do You Call That Noise? The neighbours rang to say Further discussion of English settlement prompted Chris Badley to write Round and Around. And round and round it goes, reaping what we sow. And round and round it goes, cause that's all we know. And round and round it goes, going with the flow. And round and round it goes, and round and round it goes. Now, here is Craig Stevens to introduce this month's song. What? Do you call that noise? I was listening to my favorite XTC themed podcast, thinking about what a gift their music had been to me. When Mark Fisher said that Limelight had had a headline of, we are not alone. And the words, a gift and alone, kind of coalesced into the idea of this song. So lyrically, I threw together terms to do with finance, and references to XTC lyrics. And musically, I wanted it to sound like a distant relative of This Is Pop, No Thugs In Our House, Respectable Street, Statue of Liberty. And the last thing I listened to before I started to write this was Extrovert. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can hear it at soundcloud.com. If you search for Made in Macau, M-A-C-A-U, you can hear my music there. Thanks for listening. What? Do you call that noise? Depressed. We're not alone. No, 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 no. We're free for all. Yes, 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 yes,
Venus gets undressed Signing your life on the dotted line Time at a premium, I'm calling our media Rare in the world when the stakes are high The compound is growing, the drawers are high-hoeing And dandelions will go up to the cracks You have my love, but the ice bomb bones And a quick fire throws and quack We're not Great stuff. Thank you so much for that, Craig. If you were a songwriter and have been inspired by something we have discussed on What Do You Call That Noise, the XDC podcast, please send your song to mark at xdclimelight.com. Fame and fortune awaits. A quick thank you to Kevin Winsor, who recently recorded a backstage interview with members of EXTC, XTC, in Exeter, and front of house interviews with fans who had turned out to see them. I'll be sharing that interview exclusively with supporters on Patreon to thank them for making this podcast possible. And if you've been enjoying the podcast and would like them to continue, it would be tremendous if you could join the Pink Things, Humble Daisies, and Knights in Shining Karma on Patreon. All you have to do is go to Patreon dot com forward slash Mark Fisher and choose your level of support. And if you choose to join the Knights in Shining Karma, I'll read out your name at the end of this episode. And if you haven't done so already, you should pop over to xtclimelight.com where you'll be able to buy a copy of what do you call that noise, an XTC discovery book. The 228-page book brings together some of the world's leading musicians, including Rick Buckler of The Jam, Chris Difford of Squeeze, and Debbie Peterson of The Bangles to discuss what makes XTC so very, very special. What do you call that noise? With me today, making a return appearance on What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, is Leslie Gooch, waking up bright and early in Texas. How are you doing, Leslie? Very well, thanks. I'd be with you. Fantastic to have you back on again. And with us today, Leslie and I are going to be asking the questions to two very, very special guests. First, let's welcome Ralph Lanini, who is a good friend of Todd Rundgren's and was his production and studio manager during the recording of Skylarking and most everything else he did while he lived in Woodstock. Hello, Ralph. How you doing today? 
I'm doing fantastically, not least because you're with us, which is particularly exciting. And Ralph was in the studio every day with XTC uh, during the recording of Skylarking, and they often hung out in his house for dinner in the evening. So we'll be uh, finding out more about that. And then, very, very special indeed, a voice that is known to XTC fans almost as much as that of Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. Uh, it's Jasmine Vayette, who was the eight-year-old vocalist on Dear God. Hello, Jasmine. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, we've got a lot of catching up to do, uh, but these days Jasmine is a musician, an independent stylist, a mother, a music dreamer, it says on one of her social media presences, and uh, a lover of Motown and K-pop. What's old is new, she says. Very true. That's it. And she's fragile but shatterproof. So we'll we'll we won't be making things too rough for her, but, <laughs> uh, but hopefully she won't break if we do. Well, I think we'll be okay. I think we will be. Um, maybe Ralph, because you are the senior member of the uh, the interviewees, we should start with your memories because uh, because you were responsible for bringing Jasmine in in the first place. Is that right? That's right. Um, when um... They were working on Dear God. Um, they decided they wanted a kid to sing the beginning, the first, not just a, a line. They wanted the whole first initial opening verse and the tag portion at the very end. So uh, typically Todd would, uh, you know, say to me, look, we need a, a string quartet Sunday night at two in the morning or whatever. And I would figure out how to do that. So he was like, well, who, you know, could you find somebody? And Andy was like, yeah, can you, you know someone? I said, did it need to be a girl or a boy? And he's, they, didn't really, they didn't really care. I just had to sound like a little kid. So I knew uh, Jasmine since she was a baby. And I'm really good friends with her dad, Joe Vayette, who's a, a guitar maker, has Vayette guitars in Woodstock, New York. And, um, and Jasmine had been singing all her life. She was you know, used to singing with headphones on, with microphones, you know, singing with her parents. Her parents had a band. Um, you know, Jane and Joe would play together in a band called the Phantoms. So I knew that she, you know, she was like totally together as a little kid and super smart, super quick learner. So I didn't think of anyone else except her when they said they need a little kid. It was like, well, yeah, of course, Jasmine. So um, I remember I got a cassette, I believe, from Andy or Todd. I don't remember whether it was the demos for the song or whether it was the track in progress that Andy did a scratch vocal on or maybe just strum guitar and played. I feel like it was relatively close to being finished. All right. So it was the track and Andy sang the, you know, the vocal as he, you know, perceived it for a kid to sing. And I went over, uh, gave it to Jasmine, um, you know, and, you know, it was worked on, you know, she worked on it to learn how Andy was singing the song. Uh, The key was like perfect for her, but, in the time that I went to find Jasmine and give her the song, I remember Andy and the guys and Todd, you know, were kind of fretting, oh, you know, we want a kid, but, you know, you're going to bring a kid in here. It's going to take forever. And, it, you know, it may not be right. And, you know, they were fretting about the process of doing doing it. But um, anyway. We want a kid that's a pro. <laughs> yeah, they didn't, know what they, were, they didn't know what they were getting, right? So, uh, and Todd doesn't like to spend a lot of time in the studio. You know, he likes to work quickly and move on. So, um, so uh, you know, we brought Jasmine up, uh, you know, was it in the morning or afternoon? I can't remember. Oh, I, I think day. it was did afternoon. You cut, did it was you cut probably school? after school. Did no, you cut was, school? I'm pretty sure it was after school. <laughs> so she went up. And um, the way Todd's studio was, it was very rustic. It was... Uh, Downstairs was the recording room, and upstairs was a loft on about one-third of the upstairs. The, the rest had a high ceiling. 
and uh, you could look through the mirror, uh, a window in the loft down to the person singing. So we put headphones on Jasmine, got in front of the mic, and uh, and Todd got a level. And um, my recollection is like Jasmine just sang it, <laughs> like from beginning to end, and it was perfect, you know. And she had all Andy's little British pronunciations of a few words and vocal inflections and and everything. He just like totally nailed it. And I remember in the control room, everyone was like in a, in a state <laughs> of shock, you know? And, um, and then it was fast forward to the very end where she had to sing the last dear God and hold the note. And she did that. I, I remember it was, I don't remember your recollection of it. No, your recollection, but it was done relatively quickly. I think maybe two takes. Yeah, I think maybe one take just to get a little comfortable. It, yeah. And Todd was like, so "Okay, I get the timing." Yeah, let's try it. So, um, you know, it it was a wrap. And and look, we've all been in the studios where a vocalist takes forever to do a a vocal and punches in individual words and everything. But this was like a a perfect take and and very inspired. And I think that to start a song like that, a little kid doing it, you have to really do something well to make it you know, to pull it off. And, and Jasmine totally nailed it. And do, do your memories, because it's a long, you were only eight, Jasmine, do, do your yeah. memories coincide with that? I actually have a, a pretty good memory of a lot of it um, because I didn't do that kind of stuff every day. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, I, I did sing with my parents and they're in their gigs a lot, but that was just very common to me. So being in the studio, I'd seen my parents recording so I kind of knew, you know, the seriousness of it and stuff like that. Um, I remember my dad bringing me a tape, a cassette tape into my room and saying, put this in your recorder and listen to it. And he showed me the parts I had to learn. And he goes, learn it. And, you know, we'll probably get back together with Ralph in a couple of days. And I did. it. I listened to it quite a few times on my thing while I was coloring and whatever I was doing. <laughs> And um, I had the, I remember writing down the words. I remember writing down the words and having the words next to me. And I was like, you know, playing. I was eight and a half or something like Probably that. Probably not much different than if your dad asked you to learn a song for one of his gigs. Or pretty something. much, yeah. pretty much. So I just, uh, I remember walking up to the studio with dad and feeling kind of nervous. But it was like, you know, this is, this is just like any other time you sing. This is, this is just, you know, people like your voice and, they want you to just participate on their song and nothing probably will happen with it. So just take it easy and relax and just be be about having fun. So I was coming from it with no pressure. I had no clue what was going on. Um, I remember sitting on this kind of high stool and I had like a view in a mirror or something of Todd and I could kind of see my dad. And I remember Todd saying, you know, Ralph and, and your dad are right here. So just yell because I was in this room. You're all by yourself downstairs. It felt yeah. pretty big. I'm sure it wasn't super big, but for, it felt pretty big. And I was a small kid. So <laughs> I remember like my feet dangling and stuff. I was on a stool. So I remember singing the first verse and I remember him saying, okay, that's good. Come on up. And I was like, did I do something wrong? And he was like, no, 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 it's perfect. Come on up and we're going to listen to it. <laughs> So I went up and I listened and he was like, okay, now we're going to go back down and you're going to do the part at the end. And I think I did it twice. And he was like, that's it. You're done. And I remember kind of feeling like 
not sure if I did a good job because I'd remembered my parents recording over takes over and over. I just remember feeling kind of unsure, like, did I do everything okay? And they were like, no, you did it perfect. And I think I remember being told I was in and out in 45 minutes. That's, and it's 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 particularly amazing given the uh, impact that that song had uh, not only as a as, as a song in itself in the culture in American culture in particular but o- also in boosting XDC's career because they were uh, you know going through a, 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 a quiet patch at that time and yet this is you know your contribution to it happened so fast. It's it's pretty interesting the way it all yeah it just clicked funneled toge- out. It just clicked together. You know, it was kind of the. In, in the flow of the way Todd did stuff, he did things, you know, he did things really quickly and he was really confident in his decisions. And, uh, and a lot of things just moved along in the, his studio when we worked yeah, like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. And, and Jasmine, were you, uh, how, what was your awareness after that song had been recorded about, about its fate and the album? Um, well, I mean, at eight, I had an idea of, my parents were very, open as far as raising me. Um, I was pretty self-aware that religion was a pretty heavy topic and anything that touched on God or anything like that, even at eight, I was aware of. Um, So I found it kind of, I don't know, for an eight-year-old to be singing about the price of beer, you know, I was like, you know, oh, (laughs) I'm kind of an adult right now. (laughs) So I thought it was a pretty cool topic for a kid to be singing about. And I could actually even relate to the concept of if everything is so crazy, how can there be something that's supposed to be like making sure everything's not, you know? So as a kid, I could kind of wrap my brain around what they were trying to poke at, even at eight. So... Um, I remember the whole thing was like, nothing's probably going to come from this. It's just a cool thing to add. Cause I was starting to kind of do sessions at that point uh, in other ways. So it's like, it's just a cool thing to add to your resume. And, um, when it was released and the song wasn't on it, I had album credit and he was like, see, look, this is a great lesson. You did this thing. And it didn't turn out, but you look, you got recognized for your contribution and this is something we can put in your portfolio. And that's kind of where we left it at that. And I was really psyched that I got to even do that. So then we put a pin in that and that's where it was for however many months until the next phase kicked in, I guess, you know. I find that interesting. I don't know if eight, eight at eight I would be... I guess I started to think, you know, along those same lines. It was several years before I started thinking more critically. But I I keep thinking, this is going to be a silly question, but I keep thinking, how many times, Jasmine, through your life, have you had that song come on and, like, you're looking around to grab somebody and say, hey, that's me. Actually, it doesn't happen that (laughs) often, believe it or not. But it happens for, like, my cousin, and even when it was subsided for many, many years, I'd be like 15 and I'd get a phone call and my dad would be like, oh, cousin Rachel heard XTC when she was in the car. <laughs> um, but they live in Long Island. It's a wet, more downstate. So there was college radio. She was a college student. So it was just a whole different um, world for me. I was, you know, I was into pop 
like I was in, in my teens, you know, whatever was on the radio, that's was, that what I was into. But my parents were in an oldies band, so I was into way old material mm. for my age. The, it's not normal for an eight-year-old to know who the Beatles are, but I did. It's not normal for an eight-year-old to know what a British invasion was, but I did. <laughs> So I had a really non-traditional upbringing. I was in bars almost every weekend with my parents doing when they were gigging and I was sleeping under a drum riser. So I would and I was seeing a lot of things I shouldn't be seeing from the age I was probably 5 up. So you knew about the price of beer. Very, I knew about the price of beer, yes, <laughs> and scotch and whiskey and other things that kids shouldn't know about. But it gave me a very real uh perception and not a very fairy tale mm-hmm. storybook that kids get, you know? So I'm I, I never feel like I was like miss missing out on anything that a normal kid should have. Cause to me, it was perfectly normal. And I feel like I had a great childhood. So like all that heavy religion stuff was kind of just stuff I was already um exposed to for lack of a better way mm-hmm. to put it, you know, being around so many adults. And did your your peers, uh, I suppose, it, it, the, the people at school and all the rest of it would have all been naturally the same age as you, and therefore they also would be maybe a little bit too young to be, they weren't listening to college radio to have heard that ra- that, that, that sound. So. No, they had no idea. I mean, I had a lot of friends that had musicians as parents, so they understood, oh, I'm going to do a session or something like that, or I went and did a recording. But most of my friends really, that wasn't even something we talked about. It was just like, my parents are are musicians, and we have guitars around everywhere and microphones everywhere, and I would often go to their house to, like, not have to deal with that other stuff because all they wanted to do was like strum on guitars and sing in microphones and stuff. And I just kind of wanted to be a kid sometimes too. (laughs) Every once in a while. They didn't, every (laughs) once in a while. So they didn't really understand any of that, you know, at all. I think until I was a little older and I actually did a cartoon, the theme song with John Sebastian for the Care Bears cartoon. And then some of my friends were like, oh, wow, Care Bears. So that just literally shows you (laughs) that, that split that yeah, I so, was in so you really didn't lot, until maybe you know? the Care Bears. You didn't go through that sort of Justin Bieber or or I'm trying to think of other child stars. You know, I mean, I'm, you you also have to understand. I grew up in Woodstock, so everybody's jaded there. Everybody has parents that are musicians or a family yeah. member that's a musician or knows somebody famous or is somebody famous. And it's a really small town. It's really small. Everybody knows everybody, so there was never any of that. Like, oh. There was never mm-hmm, any of mm-hmm. that. So, which is good, yeah. I feel like, you know, for a kid to, it was just another day. It was just another Yeah, day. totally, because the the number of people who've been completely screwed up by their childhood experiences, however exciting that they were, is 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 great. I think that that number of people and and, sure. and so it was good that you escaped any of that damage. And, and, and following up Leslie's for question sure. about, you know, being in a in a supermarket when you hear it coming on the radio or something like that. Uh, do you, did you go through a phase of, of being embarrassed by your eight year old voice because it was in the same way that we are embarrassed about our childhoods or were you always reconciled with it? I feel like I was always just proud of it. You know, I feel like it was, you know, uh, a pr- I, I always kind of got the vibe that it was a, a pretty cool thing that I was a part of. And I always, I always grasped that. So, 
you know, I would hear people say, oh, your voice, it's so cute. And your voice is so, but then I hear people say, oh, you sound exactly the same. And I don't feel like I sound exactly <laughs> the same, but you know, he thought I sounded pretty similar when I sang it to him. So yeah. a couple months ago, he's like, oh, you sound the same. So I guess it's all in the beholder. As yeah, say. that's and, yeah, quite strange because voices do obviously develop a huge amount in, in between eight and 18. Uh, and what about the rest of the album, Jasmine? Were you did did you pay attention to the rest of the album, and did you did you become an XTC fan? Has it just been at the time? I did not at all. But in my older years, I would say late teens, early twenties, I went on like a curiosity trip. Like, what is this group that I'm literally tied to forever in a, in a great way? But what who are like? Who are they as musicians? Because I never, <clears throat> excuse me, I never really thought about that when I was younger. And I find, well, first of all, from Skylarking itself, I think the first song was probably my favorite one. And I just feel like um, it has a lot of things I like in a song as far as songwriting and lyric content and the, the feels that you get. Um, as far as the other stuff, I only, within the last 10 years or so, really started to delve into some of their discography. And I am by no means up on their material or anything like that. But I totally get why they have such a huge fan base. And the inspiration that their music pulls from, I can relate to. Like, I can hear bits of this and bits of this genre and bits of this group and the way they encompass everything together, but are still themselves, I find to be probably the coolest thing. Yeah, well, but I imagine particularly as you're saying, your parents were into oldies music and you grew up with that. You basically, it sounds like you grew up with the influences that XTC grew up with, except you were just yeah. that much younger. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they had a cover, like a cover band, right? yeah. 50s cover band, and also an acapella group. Yeah, there, there was a doo-wop acapella group that did openers for big acts. And then they had a musical group that was uh, instruments and five vocals. So everybody sang um, like f 50s up, I would say, at that point. It was like 50s and 60s when I was young. So the Beach Boys and the Beatles and anything and everything harmony they did. And they did really well. And so that was what I grew up on. And funk and Motown and and... Then when I grew up, my change in music kind of went off of that. And I went through a blues phase and a funk phase and uh, then a hard um, top 40 phase, like all Madonna, all Cyndi Lauper, all Michael Jackson. I went through all of these things that then I realized were all kind of tied back to the stuff that I had been listening to when I was a kid, mm -hmm. you know, because all of those later groups are influenced by the stuff that obviously came before it. And now having a teenager, well, th three, but an 18-year-old that's into K-pop and got into K-pop when she was 12, that totally opened my eyes, too, to the same concept of, like, that old being new again. And K-pop is based on, like, Motown and the 80s, and that's all the stuff that I love. So it's been really interesting to kind of pull from all of that and I feel like groups like XTC that take from all of those bits of genres and make it their own I think that's pretty inspirational you know yeah and I think one of those 
the things to be one thing to be said about XDC is exactly as you're saying it that they're beyond the category pop. You can't you can't label them as as actually many of the things you just said. You can't label them as funk. You can't label them as heavy metal. You can't label them as as, as jazz. Although they might have elements of all of those things in there, and that, that and that sort of openness, right. which is the same openness that the Beatles had and, and other groups that you mentioned, I think is possibly you know accounts for the longevity as well. That yeah, for sure, because they're more they're more popular now, aren't they, than they ever were. What do you think, Leslie? Would you say that, Leslie? Do you think? Well, I mean, I have my perspective. So I, I, I've been a fan for a long time. Um, I, I became a really keen fan um, when None Such came out. But you know, that was pretty much it. I, I didn't even know their you know whole catalog um, until This Is Pop, the documentary, came out, and I think, I think that served a lot. Uh, I, I think, you know, people who were already kind of in the super fan category really love that. But I think there are a lot of us. I've connected with a lot of people who really love the band, but saw that um, documentary and just, you know, it supercharged their their fan status. Um, and then, you know, a lot of us have connected online and that's, you know, I met you, Mark, and, and so many people. And it it feels like it's really grown, but I, I don't know what it was before, really. I mean, I, I think the numbers in those, um, like, Facebook groups and such have really grown. So, yeah, it does. Well, social media was huge for that, for sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think maybe there's, just because the passage of time, there are younger musicians who are, who are recognizing this band that has that been sort of slightly or very neglected over the years and so on. And I'm being, and being inspired, inspired by, them. by yeah, them. Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking of one more D- Dear God question, Jasmine, which is what it feels like to watch the video of Dear God, and some uh, your voice comes out to some I other boy's voice. That too. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a little it's a little creepy. It's a little creepy. Uh, full <laughs> disclosure, it's a little creepy. Um, but it's 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 okay. I I get it. I get the storyline. I get what they were going for. Um, I do remember seeing some interview in a magazine or a newspaper or something where they gave a story like, oh, well, we didn't think she'd want to be flown out to shoot the video and miss school. Like, no, it was just, it was the storyline. It's okay to just say it was the (laughs) storyline. I'm sure they got that question a million times and I'm sure it was annoying. (laughs) Um, But, but yeah, I mean, it's. Well, I remember when you were a little kid, you know, you told your friends that you sang on the song. And they saw the and video. And they saw on MTV this little boy singing it. And they said, well, you didn't sing it. I saw the video. A little boy sang it. Yeah. So that was kind of a drag for proof. For yeah, us. I that, forgot about like, that, actually. Yeah. I forgot about that. She couldn't, that. like, you know, they thought she was lying about it. Yeah. I mean, like, I had, I think I actually brought in the album one day or something to show people or something. <laughs> because, uh... Yeah, I remember that now. That was kind of weird. But um, now I I feel like it's pretty cool. And I think the video, I showed my daughter the video. My daughter um, heard the song for the first time when they used it in It. Oh. And she was like, she went to see It in the movie. And she had seen like little bit, heard little bits of, of Dear God um, just probably clicked it for a second and not really listened to it. But she went to see it in the theater with her grandparents, her paternal grandparents. And she texted me after she was like, mom, (laughs) 
the song is in the movie. And I was like, I know, Leah. And she's like, no, it's your entire verse. And then they cut it. <laughs> like the only part that they play in the movie is your part. <laughs> I was like, oh. So I found that to be pretty cool, I must say. Um, I'm also a Stephen King fan, so that was pretty neat. Um, but yeah, it's just um, a pretty a pretty awesome thing to be connected to. Yeah, and I, I does, it feels like it's quite nice in a way because you've had uh, none of the downsides of fame, but and all of the upsides. You know, the the the, the knowledge that you've done, I suppose <laughs> the, that's the knowledge true. that you've done something good, and, and, and none of the um, you know the hassle that you might have got with all that. I mean, it is kind of fun. It's not like you go out and people are like, I know who you are. But two, three times a year, I get a random message on one of my social medias. Are you dot, dot, dot. And it's kind of fun, you know? Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. So, so Ralph, I wonder whether we should, we, I mean, we definitely should talk a little bit more about Skylarking and the whole experience of that. But maybe can, can we go back even further than that and talk about how your relationship with Todd began? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I moved up. Uh, I got out of college, majored in music. I moved to Pauling, New York for a little bit. And then I moved to Woodstock because of the music scene. And um, doing gigs up here was a very vibrant, you know, cool place to be if you were a musician. And um, my girlfriend at the time was looking for work. She was a singer. And she went to Todd Rundgren's video studio uh, in Bearsville because there was just word out there that they were looking for people to help. And she went in and introduced herself. And that day she was hanging lights and, you know, painting sets and everything, you know, that, yeah, they really needed people to help. So, and then I met Todd also um, through that. And, um, and we became, you know, little by little friends with Todd. And then, um, yeah, I eventually started working for him um, in the studio. Um, you know, as like a, a studio manager, production manager, uh, doing a lot of things. You know, it was just like a one-man shop, basically. It was him, you know, and lots of times he'd be working all day into the night. And I was like, Todd, have you eaten today? He's like, no. Do you want to go get you a sandwich? Okay, you know, you know that kind of stuff. You know, he would just work all day, all night. He was up there a lot by himself. And truly the hermit of Mikalo you know, was in effect, you know, not all the time, but a lot of the time he was just so driven to, to do his music. And when he got on a project, he just worked nonstop on it. So, um, you know, I, I did a lot of things to expedite what he was trying to accomplish and make it, uh, easier for him and, uh, make sure there were no things that were going to fall apart or no problem areas that were going to, you know, creep up and uh, try to make things run really smooth, you know? And it was really cool because eventually when he was going out to on tour and everything, he would say, you know, Ralph, you should, you know, if you want to use the studio, use it because it's better to use a studio than to have it sit dormant. So I would bring in, you know, some of my own projects to produce sometimes. And, you know, if, if it was a paying client, you know, I would give Todd some money from it and, you know, just use the studio. And so it was like, you know, that was, you know, my life revolved around a lot of, of what he was doing at the time, you know? And of course, I learned as a, a producer, I mean, what better thing to learn is to be in the studio with Todd all the time and see how he, he did stuff, which a lot was very unorthodox compared to other producers. But you know, And, and you've also touched on that thing already about how quick he is and how, how fast he makes his decisions, uh, which, which I, I'm, yeah. you know, if you talk to the members, <laughs> if you talk to the members of XTC, they sometimes think that's, that can be a downside because they were very fastidious and wanting all right, that detail. Exactly. But what are the pros and cons of that? But that's how Todd, that's how Todd was. He was extremely confident to make 
quick decision. I mean, here's one quick story when he was working on the second Bat Out of Hell album and Jim Steinman was up and they did, I can't remember, it was guitar solos or vocal takes of Meatloaf and they did like 10 takes, you know, and they had to erase most of them because it was on 24 track tape to move on. And Steinman was like, could you make me a cassette or a CD of that? I'll listen to it in the car of the weekend. And Todd was like, why can't we decide right now? Because Todd would just decide right then and there and be totally confident and wipe the other 10 tracks, you know? Um, so that's, that's how he worked on everything. He felt, I think that if he belabored things too much, it, you, the inspiration, uh, dissipates. And he always said, look, it doesn't, you know, people don't listen to records to, because the, the sound on the hi-hat that some engineer spent a day getting, it, it has no <laughs> bearing really on whether the record is, uh, is going to be successful. And he also said, if you listen to every record, the drum sounds different on every record. It's not like you're going for a particular thing and you finally get it and that's going to make a hit. So he had a very different way of uh, approaching everything. And he was very, you know, he was strict with himself in the studio, which was probably pretty easy because he was so brilliant and could do everything. But he also brought that to the table when he was producing other people. And, um, you know, he... he um, you know, if someone wasn't singing something right, he could look up from, you know, reading a computer magazine and press the talkback button and sing it perfectly in their headphones. So it could be intimidating a lot of times to artists because he just was so together and so and so brilliant. And um, and I, I think that's where, you know, the thing with Andy, you know, I wasn't that aware that that was going on. So it wasn't like super blatant, like the stories that came out uh, afterwards that they were fighting all the time. I remember it being a pretty, you know, joyous work progress. And, um, like I said, the, you know, once a week or so, the guys would come to my house, we make Italian food and hang out. And, you know, um, everyone was there. Everyone was getting along, joke, a lot of joking around, kidding, along, kidding around. But, you know, I could see for artists like Andy making an album is a big, you know, it's a big deal. And, you know, he, he was used to his methodology and taught at a different, workflow and i think that's where the um where the clash was i think the other the two other two members of the band like working with todd uh because i think he really um saw what they brought to the table and i remember him telling andy you know if i wanted to produce an andy partridge album i produce i would produce an andy partridge album but i took this project because i wanted to produce an xtc album and he saw i think the three of them as equals in XTC, like when he had his band Utopia, they were all equals in the, in that, with the songwriting, publishing, you know, uh, in the, with that aspect, but also in the creative elements, you know. And I think that's where he envisioned the record. But uh, but I don't remember like you know coming to blows or anything like that. You know, I don't remember uh, the way it was. The setup, you know, this Todd it was very unique. He had his house up on top of the hill. And then down the hill was the studio, and below that was what we called the guest house, which was a big old country house. And we're like all houses in in Woodstock. It was kind of, you know, it wasn't a mansion. It was a little bit funky, but everything up here was that way. And we had two vans that were decked out that the bands drove around in. You know, one of them had a bed in the back. You know, they were old, big old Dodge vans. And um, and so Todd did, you know, provided everything for the bands when they when they came. You know, so um. I do remember the guys from XTC came and one of the first things they did in the guest house, they got some big pieces of cardboard or wood and they made these soldiers out of paper and they made this whole battleground. It was like some uh, board game that they actually <laughs> built themselves that they, 
they played. You know, oh, I had wow. no idea how it, how it went, but it was so intricate wow. what they made. I was really blown away. <laughs> I know Andy has designed several games. Um, and Is that what they, so, so they've talked about that? They, I, I don't they, know if that specific one, but I, yeah. Mark, do you know more about that? I just know that over the years he's, he's designed several games. Yeah. I've never heard it in specifically in relation to Skylocking, which seems to be why it's it's particularly fascinating. But yeah, to me, my memory was one of the first things that they did when they got here. I was like, "All right, <laughs> we got to get this, got to get this game going." There wasn't that much to do. You know, Woodstock's a small town. The next nearest town is Kingston, where there's like mall and fast food and stuff like that. But Woodstock is pretty rural, and Todd's like three miles down the end of a, a rural road in you know Mink Hollow Road. And to get to Woodstock's a good, probably 10 minute drive from there. And, you know, it's not a lot to do, you know, so they, you know, they made themselves mm, entertained, mm. you know, and they worked a lot in the studio. Now, didn't they want to come when I was recording and he put his foot down and told them no? I don't remember that. I don't remember. I remember Andy was there. I don't think I, I spoke to Andy the other day and said I was doing this. And he mentioned that that he hadn't met Jasmine. I don't think he's ever met you. Oh, so he wasn't in no. the, he wasn't there that day. It was just Todd. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I remember like reading or something that they had wanted to be there. And he was like, no, because it's a little <laughs> kid and we don't want her to be intimidated and feel like pressure. And they were like peeking in the window or something like that. Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember that. Yeah. I mean, I, I read it, I feel like in um a magazine or something. Yeah, I wouldn't, on hindsight now, it would have been really pretty cool to have met them, you know, but is what, is what it is, maybe someday. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Ralph, I'm fascinated by your observation that there didn't seem to be a bad atmosphere in, in the studio, because you're exactly right. That's not the message that <laughs> many stories have been told about those, those sessions because of the people involved in it. I think either from both Todd's point of view and from Andy's point of view, both of them seem to be having quite a rough time. But other stories that you get from XTC in other studios, in other, for other albums, uh, the, the impression you get is that they were just very amusing and good company. And, and is that what you found particularly like when you were inviting them around to dinner? And yeah, stuff? they were, they were, they were a lot of fun. I remember having a lot of laughs, you know, um, you know, there were times where, you know, I think it's written in the wiki about the, the album where Todd said to Andy, you oh, know, you could stay here and, you know, mess around all day. I'm going to go back up to the house. And when I come back, you know, call me when you realize it's not going to work and we'll come back and do it my way. Right. That was a famous quote. And I'm sure they were, you know, they were like um, incidents like that, but they weren't like that. I recall any fights about it. It was just like Andy would, you know, get, you know, that would be annoying to him and Todd would go up to the house and then they would come back and keep working. But there were, but generally it was, a, it was a really good um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. atmosphere that I remember. I remember, like I said, we, they'd come over to the house, we'd have dinner, have laughs, I'd drink beer and, you know, it just didn't seem much different than any other album. I know Todd was surprised that after the album was done and the guys went home that then Andy expressed that he was, you know, really unhappy with a lot of things. And, and I remember Todd being surprised mm-hmm. about that. Um, because um, I didn't think in the studio that anything was going on that was any different than any band and producer making a record that I observed yeah. over the, the years yeah, of I, doing stuff, you know? I think you, you already really touched on, I from my perspective or my understanding, the, the kind of core problem was just the approach, right? Because Andy was so 
I think Andy was so used to being like in the details of everything and making everything perfect and doing it over and over until it fit the vision in his head. And it's just so in, you know, entwined in the material itself and wanted to take all the pains needed to, to make it perfect. Yeah. He was the tortured artist doing <laughs> his record, you know, and Todd was the producer trying to, you know, move it along and keep the inspiration and the flow of it all going. So, you know, Todd was more global and maybe Andy was being more granular and Todd didn't think uh, often that those granular elements really made that much of a difference for the end product. And what, what about Todd's personality? Because it sounds, I mean, Andy Partridge, I know, is a very, very funny, witty, sharp person. Sounds like Todd is maybe a very similar personality, uh, you know, self. Oh, yeah. Todd's, Todd's like a lot of fun, you know. He's like really, you know, just he's, he's fun to be with. You know, he's very thoughtful. He's extremely smart, you know. Um, I remember being up in his house one day and the Jehovah Witnesses came up with pamphlets about religion and he debated religion with them to the point where they just got in their car and they <laughs> drove back down the they driveway gave up. and never came back because <laughs> he knew more about their stuff and every other religion than they could even ever imagine. Now, Todd was a very brilliant guy. He is a very brilliant guy. He is, uh, you know, all self-schooled and he he has pretty much expert level knowledge of such a wide variety of, of, of topics. It's, it's really amazing. And can that have a negative effect of rubbing up people the, other, the wrong way? You know, if he's, if he's sort of too clever or too sharp or too, whatever it might take is cause I think he's got a, I don't think Andy Partridge is the only person that he's, that he's argued with. Yeah. I, 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 you know, all the times I work with Todd, I, I never remember arguments with any bands in the studio. I remember arguments between bands, like the Psychedelic Furs, we used to have fistfights among themselves <laughs> and all. Uh, but I remember things, you know, we did a lot of records. We did a lot of records, you know, a, a number each year. And they typically took a, a month, five or six weeks tops, you know. Um, Todd worked very quickly and he worked quickly on his own records. He, he knew as he was working how he wanted it to sound. And when he mixed songs, he could mix two or three songs in a day, where a lot of producers at that time were spending, uh, you know, two, three, four days a week on one song. So I remember bands would say sometimes, well, we really like the mix, but we he did it so quick. What if he spent more time? You know, would it be better? And Todd's, you know, perception was, no, it wouldn't be better because this was his inspired mix of the song that he's been listening to for a long time and we didn't have automation in the studio so you had to move the faders as you did the mix it was actually a performance it's not like pro tools now where it remembers the song you did yesterday and just brings it right up for you so um it was a different style of uh working interesting thing with the xtc record my recollection was we rented a mitsubishi two-track machine to mix down to and that was the first time that we did that. And the machine was big. I think we had to leave it downstairs because it wouldn't go upstairs into the control room. And um, when the album was done and um, Mary Lou Arnold and I were driving the tapes in one of the vans down to New York City to get mastered. Todd didn't typically go to the mastering sessions. He knew the mastering engineer he worked with and, you know, was was cool. And he listened to the, the uh, you know, the, the mix on vinyl. But uh but we were bringing it down, and we stopped at McDonald's on Route 17, which was this really busy road in New Jersey. And we got burgers and 
shakes. And we got into a serious accident on Route 17. And the shakes, a vanilla and a chocolate one, burst open and spilled all over the box <laughs> of the XTC mixes <laughs> that were all packed up with the label on it. And everything was Thatcher's ketchup. And, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, we, we, we basically got rear-ended by a tractor trailer who didn't slow down for construction. And, you know, it was like five or six-car pileup. And the uh, the tapes were all you know, full of goo and glob, and we we cleaned them off, and they got down to I think the next day to get to get mastered. But that was a funny ending, capping off the story. Yeah, I've, I've never heard that, and 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 yeah, and potentially catastrophic as well. I mean, it, it sounds like it went it worked yeah. out okay. Yeah, well, those luckily those boxes for the tapes were they I can't they weren't uh-huh. made of just cardboard. They had some kind of. Uh, filament in there or something that there was some never some mind reverse polarity that's milkshake you can hear on that record <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i just heard about that recently you know and, what, does um, it make any sense to you well i i have to talk to george cow and the one of the engineers on the project but if we use that mitsubishi machine it would seem like that would be the a potential new area in the studio uh if things got reversed it probably was that machine getting wired into the Especially, system. Yeah. Especially if it was, if it was new and you were, you know, getting used to it and all the rest of it. Yeah, it was rented. Yeah. The machine was rented just right. for that session. And the machine was in the back of the van when we got right. rented too. But it was in a road case and didn't get damaged, luckily, because it was about a probably an eighty thousand dollar <laughs> machine at the time. And how um I I've heard the DexTC would come to Certainly with their earlier albums, they would come very well prepared. They would do a lot of rehearsal before they got to the studio. Was that the impression, you know, compared with other bands and so on? Did they seem to know what was what they were doing in that in that, at that sense? Well, they were tremendous players, you know, great players. But, you know, Todd's concept was to have one song drift into the next song. And I think that was something the band wasn't expecting initially i think they liked the idea when todd presented it to him I, from what i understand todd got the all the demos and he spent time at his house just reshuffle them around figure out which goes into what and mapped out the whole record so then i believe they had to you know kind of relearn things it wasn't like a song 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 it was one flowing to the next and little interludes and all so i think that might have you know slowed down the the progress of just standing there and playing. Plus they didn't, you know, they didn't record to the drums. Prairie Prince played his drums out in California. He overdubbed them on this record. So they started doing the tracks without drums on it. I think without bass as well. Uh, and then the drums went on and I think the bass went on. I believe Todd wanted the bass to go on next, but they decided to do the drums first. And, and Prairie's an amazing drummer. And I think he did a great job on the record. It's like really brilliant drumming and uh and then they brought it back to uh todd's studio to finish up so there was a lot of moving around you know with with the record so it wasn't just all the band guys in the room with the drummer mm-hmm. playing yeah I, I think that's an aspect of um skylarking that's very well loved by fans i know that that transition from summer's cauldron into grass is cited as one of the you know best ever like coupling of I two songs yeah it's wonderful i love that yeah and that presumably came from todd because uh, uh, there, there are other examples in the xdc catalog aren't there of of songs that uh do that to, to, with the crossfade but 
but certainly this time it was Todd that was was establishing the structure. Mm. I think the other guys like Todd because he liked a number of their songs. It's certainly Colin Molden gets a good a good um, hearing on on Skylarking and sometimes has fewer yeah. songs on other records. So I think from that perspective, the you know the the other guys in the band like working with with Todd because he did he did see them as three equals, you know, in 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 that way. So was what it was. The, yeah. Ultimately, it was a it was a really good record, right? It ended up being a good record, and um, and sometimes art is like that. There's a volatile side to it. There's a peaceful side to it, and they blend somewhere in the middle, and art comes out. You know. Andy does always talk about that it was always a very democratic process as far as what was going to be included. But I mean, I think, you know, up to that point, he he certainly, you know, had a heavier amount of, of songs that were included. Yeah. yeah. The thing with Todd, you know, when Todd gets something that he wants to do, it, he's not going to be talked out. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? He's going to, you know, he he's very confident that that's the right thing to do for the record. So I think maybe other producers with bands would, you know, all right, we'll do it, you know. And Todd, you know, Todd's not the kind that would do things that way. And um, on, on the other hand, that methodology made him see, have a vision for someone like Meatloaf, who everyone passed up, you know, no one wanted to sign Meatloaf. The album was done and no Bears Records didn't want the record. They had right of first refusal. Todd was, you know, visionary with it and he saw what he wanted and he went for it. So he wasn't going to change what his his vision was. And he always had a very strong vision for his projects. So it wasn't like, let me just get in the studio and start recording stuff. He knew what he was going for. Yeah. I, and uh, I think all the songs, uh, as far as I'm aware, I think all the songs were picked before the band even got there. But um, I think I remember Andy reading Andy say or hearing him say in an interview that I think they were surprised that like Todd had the whole thing laid out, like the sequence of everything, you know, how, how, right. how the he whole flow of the record. Yeah. Yeah. And don't forget at that time, you know, we're talking 36 years ago, people used to get records still and put them on and listen to side one and then flip it over and listen to side oh, two. Oh, sure. When, when my husband is playing something, he'll say side two. When, <laughs> We're listening to his play, <laughs> and he'll say, "Okay, end of side one, and now you turn it over." So right. he always has to because that's that how out. we used to <laughs> we listen, used to listen to records. And you know, when you were sequencing the record, you go, "This sounds like the right song for the last song on side one," you know, right. or the first song on side two. Now people don't think like that mm-hmm. anymore because everything's shuffled around and one-offs and one song of this, one song of that. But the albums were conceived as you know, Sergeant Pepper was conceived. You would you know, to play all the way through. And I remember going home as a kid, putting it on my bedroom, and it wasn't just background music. I would sit there and listen to the whole side. And um, and I think Todd's concept of this record was obviously like that, mm-hmm. because in the modern world, you know, when you have songs that seg into each other on iTunes, it clips off. There's a little blip in between them. You know, it doesn't want to flow from one to the other smoothly because no one listens like that anymore. And what about you, Ralph, when you were in the studio, as you've been describing it, you were going from album to album, six weeks here, six weeks there. Um, Did it feel, and and yet Skylarking is uh, among XCC fans, many XCC fans anyway, will tell you that they think Skylarking is is the pinnacle of of among pinnacles. You know, it, it's it's very high up in the estimation of XTC fans. And I'm just wondering whether 
uh, for you, was it just another album that you were doing or did it feel like there was something special that, 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 that marked it out from other things you were doing? Um, I felt like it was maybe a bit more special because I knew Todd was a big fan of XTC, that he liked the band, you know? Um, so, so that, that made it special. And, um, you know, I, I just knew they, I, I just liked the, I liked the band too. And I knew they were bringing something cool, you know, into the studio and they were coming from overseas to do the record. And it was, it was more of a bigger deal. I think it was a little, you know, it was more expensive record to do because of going to LA and string section and, you know, and, and doing all that. And, um, so, um, yeah, it was, it was a nice record. Everyone was excited you know, to work on it. And Todd was doing, you know, he did Cheap Trick and, you know, Meatloaf and, you know, a lot of people coming in and out of the studio and a lot of bands that we didn't know who they were, you know, new bands. And uh, it was a, it was a flu. And maybe he would do three records a year, three or four, and then he would tour and there would be a Utopia record would be one of them in the middle somewhere at that time. So he was, he was constantly busy, you know, and he was also doing, you know, stuff like Pee Wee's Playhouse, doing the music for that. He was doing the music for Crime Story. He did the, the score for Dumb and Dumber movie, the first one. And and so he always had projects coming into the studio. Do you listen back to not just Skylarking, but any of the albums that you were making in that era? Or is it part of your history that's just, do you do you move on? No, sometimes sometimes I do. You know, it's like, oh, wait, I remember this. Let me put this on. Let me check this out. Let me listen to a few songs. You know, I listened to Skylarking you know, recently, you know, all the way through in the car. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's cool. And how do you, how do you think it stands? How do you think it stands up? I liked it. You know, I, I had forgotten a lot of the transition stuff between songs and how one thing's flowed into the other and the energy behind a lot of the songs and uh, um, save enough for us. I always like that. Always like that song. Uh, yeah. I, I liked Andy's yeah. determination when he was singing, you know, he was very real, you know, when he sang it and, you know, and you felt like that, he had that, he could tap into that working class British vibe, you know, in a lot of the songs, you know. Um, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's really good. Well, actually, that's put, that's reminded me that one of the things that's curious about Skylarking is that, uh, you know, they went to America and uh, to, to record it. And it's got, uh, you know, the influence of working with an American producer. So they've got all of that American influence. And yet possibly it's their most english sounding <laughs> right. record you know it's a, a, very, a very english sort of experience it's it's quite a a, a, a dilemma there actually you're all american right. you can discuss amongst yourselves about yeah. that. well todd also was producing a lot of japanese artists you know over the years too they would come from japan and you know a lot of them hardly spoke any english you know um so that was interesting too you know this one one kid came over, you know, he was seemed very shy and withdrawn and from meeting with Todd and Todd worked on a single and I didn't realize how famous he was in Japan, but they said in Japan at the time he was as famous as Michael Jackson. And then I saw something on 60 minutes of him coming out of a stadium, getting in the car and all these girls climbing on the car. But when he was at Todd's house, he just seemed like this really shy, <laughs> maybe Todd intimidated him so much <laughs> being at Todd's house. Um, I don't know. But uh, no, we had we had a lot of interesting um, interesting cast of musicians coming through, and we used so for some records we used session players when that you know, was a solo artist. We would get you know Will Lee or Jerry Murata or someone to play on it. Todd would kind of say to me, you know, we need a bass player and drummer, you know, on Tuesday, and uh, and then typically I would say, well, I could get Jerry Murata and Will Lee. Let me see if they're available. But Todd was cool with a bass player and drummer who were 
who are competent and good. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and in a way that your input there, you know, and coming, you know, your your choice of Jasmine as as the singer there, that is effectively an artistic decision because you could have chosen somebody else or you could have brought in somebody else. And so it's, it's, it's contributing to the overall artistic and a logistic result. decision, in, 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 in <laughs> logistic a logistic decision, decision to yeah. know that Did, someone could do it quickly. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Next. <laughs> quick, qu- quickly and reliably, I suppose, because you could have brought in somebody who wasn't very good, yeah. and then, you know, <laughs> you know, it would have been a bad decision. Excellent choice all the way around. <laughs> yeah. 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 But did did you have any artistic input into again into skylarking or no, any not, other thing? No, not, not in was, that. It uh, wasn't collaborative in that, in that way, sense. No. Well, a good Italian food fed to a band is kind of is <laughs> probably the key to the whole the process, record. Yeah. Inspiration, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Homemade lasagna, you know. Don't yes. You know. But it's not the end of the dear God story. You have more ambitions. Uh, tell us about. Well, them. Um, I saw Jasmine um, a few months ago. Um, and uh, saw her sing with her her dad, and I started thinking it was around the time where I just randomly put on Skylarking to to listen to it. And um, I always feel like uh, I'm also an Aikido instructor, and there's a it's a martial art, and there's a balance and harmony in Aikido, blending with movement and the universe. And I felt that there was something wrong in the universe for two reasons. One was when Jasmine did the song. And it was like 36 years ago. And it was just like a quick thing. It, was, it wasn't an afterthought, but it was a very quick in and out of studio. She got paid 50 bucks for the session, which at the time for a kid, an eight-year-old, wow, 50 bucks. But in retrospect, to sing on a song that featured her in a whole verse that's featured in a movie that's, you know, I just felt like something's wrong with the universe there. It should have been more money than that. Um, not that Todd or Andy had anything to do with the, you know, was Todd's, had people that dealt with this, you know, the, the cash flow and business manager and manager and everything like that. At the time, it seemed like, like Jasmine said, well, 50 bucks, she was happy with 50 bucks. So that was one wrong in the universe, I thought. And the other was, like I said, when Jasmine saw the video and her, she couldn't brag to her friends because they had a little boy singing. So, so that's kind of another wrong in the universe, you know, speaking. And I thought um, it might be nice to write those two wrongs somehow. And also Jasmine was telling me that she was getting contacted by fans, XTC fans, Todd fans. Are you the kid? Are you Jasmine? So I thought, well, Jasmine's a grown up now. You know, she's had a life from eight years old. You know, she's got kids, you know, she's living in New York, uh, still singing, doing her thing. And like, why not hear Jasmine's version of the song as a grown up woman? And I thought that would be a really cool thing. So I was kind of thinking about well, how to go about doing this. And I thought, well, if I got Prairie Prince to play drums on it, that would be a really good foundational element to build the track from there. So I picked up the phone and I called George Cowan, who is a friend of mine. He's a recording engineer. He's one of the engineers from Skylarking. And he's, he's Todd's uh, live sound mixer nowadays. It's one of many things that he does. And I called him up. And I told him, look, I'd like to re-record Dear God with Jasmine singing as a grown-up. He thought, that, what do you think? He thought that was a brilliant idea. So I said, you know, it would be really cool if, you know, I could get Prairie to play the drums. I, you know, I know Prairie, but, I'm, you know, I don't know him super well. And I said, do you know how to get in touch with them? 
He said, George said, well, this is freaky that you call me up because I'm rehearsing starting next week with Todd for a tour and Prairie's the drummer on the tour. This is like, you know, a few months, you know, like a, during COVID, you know, coming out of COVID. So um, anyway, so I said, well, what do we do? He said, I'll call you back. I'm going to call Prairie right now. So he hangs up. He calls Prairie up and, um, and um, he calls me back 10 minutes later. He said, Prairie's totally into it. Totally into it. And he said, <laughs> it's funny when I, he said, when he met, when he told asked Prairie, if he could play on the, the song, he said, Prairie said, you know, I played on that song originally. <laughs> and George was like, well, yeah, duh. That's why I'm asking you to do it because you played on the original track. So um, anyway, so, um, so Prairie agreed to do it. And then, um, and so George said that they would try to do it during a sound check uh, at one of the venues you know, at a Todd show. And uh, a number of weeks went by and it, it, it wasn't, um, it didn't happen yet. And then George was like, okay, we could do it soon. But George and I were trying to figure out how to do it. And George said, what do you want? I said, I want Prairie to play exactly the same, same tempo, exactly the exact same part he played on the XTC record. And then we thought, well, he could just do it to a click. But then I thought, well, maybe I should build a track, like a scratch track for him to play along with. So the day before they were going to do it, I went into my studio where we are now, and I recorded um, uh, like a drum loop, and I recorded the bass and the guitars for the song. And then I sent it, all the individual tracks, to George. And that's what Prairie listened to in his headphones when he did the drums. So he recorded his drums for the new version of Dear God. He recorded it at the Chicago House of Blues. And um, George sent me the tracks. They sound awesome. I put them into Pro Tools. And then once I got that, I started, um, you know, I did the guitars. Uh, I redid the acoustic guitar. Redid the electric guitar. Redid the bass. So um, Jasmine's, the next step is Jasmine's going to sing a, a, a guide vocal or a scratch vocal, um, which could end up being the final vocal. And, um, and then um, I need to get strings put on it the string part and um i'm going to get the guys from the band tinui i believe who i was in that band it's an akron um bass band i'm gonna have them sing with jasmine at the with the at the end that really intense part you know don't believe it you know that part i'm gonna have them pan left and right with jasmine in the middle and we want to make that part like really intense and big of jasmine as a a grown-up who now knows the price of beer (laughs) (laughs) and knows about god to sing that so um and uh, so so that's how it's uh it's uh coming together and thought it'd be really just a really cool thing to do that you know xtc fans and todd fans would be interested to hear jasmine as a grown-up sing the the whole song sing her version of the song what what about you jasmine D- jasmine did you did you think that there was something wrong with the universe did you need, think <laughs> this needed to be corrected um i mean i i figured it was just a 50 dollars session fee and i honestly didn't think much of it at the time because Within the next couple of years, I had did, I had did, I had done small little sessions where it was like 75, 50. That I think, was a typical rate. Yeah, I, I think there was one thing I did uh, for uh, 
Charlie Sexton with Bob Clearmountain, and I got 125 for that. And I was like, whoa, this is big money now. I'm in the game. I was like 12 or 13, I think. And you guys know how famous Bob <laughs> Clearmountain is as a producer, and it was right? A, this is the people Jasmine <laughs> It was, was a singer. remake of Cry Little Sister that he did, the song that was on the Lost Boys soundtrack, but it was a remake of that. So I was, I was happy with 50 bucks. And then over the years, over the years, once I learned what, you know, goes into making a song and all that goes with it, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm super happy to have been part of this history. And, you know, it would have been cool to get more money, but I was okay with it. What did you do with the 50 bucks? I honestly, I honestly don't know. Coloring I'm sure books? I bought, I'm sure I bought some sort of, <laughs> honestly, I probably spent it on CDs or albums at that yeah. time is probably what I bought. Because I was huge into Madonna and Cyndi Lauper and all of that. The interesting thing was Jasmine's parents are not like stage parents where pushing their kid to do this. All this stuff just kind of happened. It was very generic, uh, uh, organic, very organic. Um, So, yeah, I just, you know, went about my business and when ended up in an all girl band when I was 15 and we had a development deal and that was called rock candy. And, and I found, you know, a love of songwriting through that group. And, and I just, it was, it became just part of my musical trajectory and part of what kind of, uh, formulated the musician that I turned into as I got older. So when he approached me about the idea, I was honestly a little like you really think this is a good idea (laughs) like um, not embarrassed but like you think people would want that like who wants that and he's like I just think it would be a really great thing and think about it so I thought about it and then I got another message from somebody and and I thought well this is kind of interesting and then the 35th anniversary happened of dear god and I made that post on Twitter. And I got so much response from that. And then I went back to him and I was like, okay, so maybe your idea is not a bad idea. <laughs> and maybe this could be something pretty fun and pretty cool. Right. So what, you know, my vision of it is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm putting together a Kickstarter to raise some money to do it. And, you know, instead of the 50 bucks, I'd like Jasmine to get 5,000 bucks if we can and some money for production costs. And it'd be fun, I think, to do a video um, that parallels the XTC video in some way um, <laughs> with the tree um, and, um, and to, you know, to pay the musicians and, and, you know, give Prairie some money and give the people, other people play on the track. And George Cowan, one of the original engineers, is going to mix it. So we're, you know, we're tapping into some of the original yeah, talent yeah. on the, the thing. History. Yeah. So I think it's just a really cool thing. It'll have its place somewhere. Well, I can also give, I can also give you one of the original actors, uh, Belinda Blanchard, who was up the tree. She's oh, really? an XDC yeah. fan, or she became an XDC fan afterwards, and uh, she's a friend of mine. Oh, great! So yeah, absolutely. You can, we'll you, talk. Can, you can actually recreate the video with the original actor, or at least I got one acquainted of the with her in a Facebook group. That was she messaged me. That was a that was uh-huh. a fun hello. That was very cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think we'll launch the Kickstarter yeah. sometime in June and I'll let you guys know. Yeah, well we'll we'll publicize it with this and, and let people know what um yeah, where where to check that. That sounds fun. That sounds uh, really interesting. Um and and that'll be this year then you'll be able to release it, do you think? Yeah, I'll, I'll be probably will be finished by the end of the summer. That's my goal. You know, and the people with the Kickstarter will get a, you know, direct download and we'll do other 
you know, perks. Jasmine will come to your house, sing, <laughs> <laughs> sing, the, intro, sing the first verse. If they party, live somewhere warm, like a Christmas yes. party. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, definitely looking forward to hearing that. That's a great idea. Yeah, Jasmine, do do you have a view on uh, on the way that you would sing it, an interpretation? Um, n- no, and yes. Um, I feel like the beginning was kind of just perfect in a way like in hindsight listening back at the song um there's just something about the innocence of a child singing that first verse and then how you get to the end where the the world is rattling you, you know and people now. are falling from the tree from the trees but the interesting thing is when i was young i was a very um not meek singer, but I, you know, I was, I was small and I was young and I was small frame and I've been singing for so long now. I feel like I'm more comfortable in my skin. Um, I'm vocally, I feel like I, I know what my instrument can do and what it's capable of doing. And I feel like that song lends itself to being able to really convey a lot with your voice there's a big range yeah yeah it it has a long range the crescendos and all of the all of the ins and outs of the the verses and excuse me and then the ride out how it just crashes and then at the end you know i feel like i would know if he would have come to me with this maybe 15 20 years ago i don't think i would have felt comfortable and even attacking it but i feel like i'm in a place now you know, I'm 46 years old. I have three kids. I've been through a lot, you know, and I feel like almost more so now to be able to understand the lyrics even, you know, to be able to convey what needs to be conveyed, you know? And the interesting thing is when I did the the work track for Prairie, I did it in the original key with the mindset that when Jasmine comes into the studio to, you know, sing along with it that we'd have to change the key to her voice now but coincidentally the original key is the perfect key for her now it's crazy so it's going to be in the original (laughs) in the original key that it and a lot of times when you change keys in songs you it's not that they don't sound good but it does sort of lose something yeah you know and to be able to do it in the same key i feel like for this song is kind of important and this song had um you know has that acoustic guitar part which is played in open position like a minor and e you know so if you had to change the key with the capo or something it wouldn't be quite the same and when i was re-recording the acoustic guitar i, I remembered i'm not 100% sure but i'm like 99% sure the the guitar part the acoustic guitar part is a bass note and then a chord strum kind of like rocky raccoon boom da da that Todd had them play the bass notes separately from the chord notes. Typically, if you played live, you'd play both together. But when I listened to it, I was like, well, something, this sounds like it was done differently. And I kind of remember them doing it that way. So when I did it, that's the way I, I recorded the, uh, the bass and the, the strumming part, ba- bass on the acoustic guitar and the strumming part on the acoustic guitar. The way that you're describing it so eloquently, Jasmine, uh, now that you've had uh, 35 years of living with that song, but 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 uh, all of the years as, as, as being a songwriter yourself and a musician and so on, how do you rate 
Dear God as a song, as you know, just in terms of songwriting craft? I mean, it's definitely probably up there. I would say solid nine and a half for sure. Um, it all it takes a lot to go to that place. First of all, mm. to write anything in that content. It's not I love you, you love me. Yeah, it, those kind of things. Yeah, you can delve deep and you can like, it's different. It's a totally different subject matter. We all know it's a totally different subject matter. But it's it's the eloquence of how he writes about it. Um, almost passive aggressively, but but not if that's possible, you know? This like... Well, if everything's so great, then how can everything be so screwed up, you know? And that is pretty much the basic question that everybody thinks of when something goes wrong. When someone passes, um, oh, they come up with all these, oh, the good ones, now, you know, always go too soon. And you have to try and justify it. But when it really boils down to it, how can all this bad crap happen if there's something that's supposed to be so all-seeing, all-knowing? And for me now as an adult who is into this whole universe thing also, um, and the yin and the yang and the right and the wrong and the good and the bad and however you want to slice it, the way the song tackles that subject matter for me as a musician and as a songwriter is almost perfect. You know, I I don't call any music perfection because for me it's just it's it's difficult for me. I think things are almost perfect. I don't call anything perfect because that's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. But I feel like it's it's really about as good as you can get. It's it 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 ticks all those boxes. You know, emotion, yeah. lyrical content music the way it makes you feel does it make you think does and it the stick in your the head the chords in the beginning are quite strange those acoustic guitar chords in the in the verse you know there, there's a dissonance in the bass plucking movement of the the acoustic guitar and also at the end i mean Ang uh, Andy is seriously angry when he's singing yeah, it. i mean you can hear it in his in his voice you know, the performance of that you know and um and maybe in one aspect, working with Todd was maybe he got it all out. Maybe Todd, you know, people maybe say Todd was, is God yeah. all, to all the Todd fans. Todd is God. <laughs> so maybe he was <laughs> looking up at the mirror <laughs> into the control room and <laughs> singing it to Todd. I don't know. But uh, but he gave it a you know phenomenal performance yeah. at that end. It's so intense. Yeah. Right? And then Jasmine's sweet little voice at the end, you know, it's you, dear God. I mean, it's it's pretty it's quite a brilliant song. I think probably a lot of people have not ever even heard it. You know, I have some friends ask me, what, what have you been working on? I said, well, one of the things I'm doing is, you know, recreation, dear God. I said, oh, who's that? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I heard that song. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people haven't heard it. Um, it's a song that, um, you know, is, is just well, an amazing piece of work. I found it so interesting that they used it in the Stephen King movie, too. Like, why that song? And mm -hmm. why that one part of the song? Mm -hmm. And... It's just, you know, there's just so many things about the song that I think it just makes people feel and think and question. And that's kind of what good music is supposed to do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I agree with you, Jasmine. I have I connect really emotionally with the song. And I know like a lot of what it says is, you know, not just so 
out there, it's, it's, it's because it's the same thoughts that a lot of people have when they're sort of struggling with um, faith and, you know, questioning things. And I, I can just remember like, oh, that's exactly what I thought. And even though a lot of people think exactly that, it still made me really connect with the song emotionally. Yeah. People are afraid to say it and they're afraid to put it in a, mu- in a in a musical format where it hits you in the face like that song does. I know that Andy, I, I know that he has expressed, he, he was frustrated with the song or not happy with the song because he just there was so much more he wanted to say and and there's only so much you can fit in a in a you know three and a half four minute song but interestingly i you you mentioned that first voice the verse is so perfect for a child and i wonder if you knew that um andy apparently got the idea of it being a, like a letter to to god because he saw a book that was a collection of letters children had written to god so, oh, so it actually is kind of taken from from that as a letter to God, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but well, the other thing with Andy singing that song is that you know you often assume a character when you sing a song, right? You either the the singer songwriter, but sometimes you're the person, you know, like uh, Paul Simon singing the boxer. He was this poor boy in New York. He assumed that person, and Andy assumed the personality of you know like kind of a British working class dude you know, with the price of beer. And, you know, he establishes that in the beginning of the song. So then at the end, his rant to God is is from a common folk. You know what I mean? That it, that is, it has seen life and seen things happen. And like, why is this, why is this happening? I think it makes it more powerful because he's, he's, in, he's in some sort of character when he's singing it. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the character is him as a person, but he's tapping into that, I think, much more to put the song across in the documentary this is pop that i was talking about a a little while back um there's part of part of that documentary shows like a scene and it looks like a notebook and and i'm looking at it and i'm looking i'm like wait a minute is that a verse of dear god that didn't make it into the final version and i oh really oh yeah and i stopped you know i got it on my phone and i stopped it and i like zoomed in and i I took notes. I'm like writing out. I've got the lost verse. Like I've, I've, I've discovered (laughs) something here. Yeah. Like those are Andy's personal notes. And then if, uh, some, you know, not very much longer after that, I ordered the book, um, complicated game. And it's, there's a shot of it right in there. Like I, I must've taken 30 minutes, like zooming in and, (laughs) but it's in, it's in that book. Yeah. And I, it's an interesting verse. I'm not sure why it didn't, he didn't put it in. Maybe it was just too long. Um, too long, but I I think it's pretty perfect as is. Although I suppose it's, it points out ta- that he does take his lyrics seriously, and he doesn't just mm. sort of dash them off, and he he'll work on them and revise them and work, you know. Right, work and Todd's them. like that, you know. He w- I remember him sending bands. I don't remember what XCC, but with other bands, and just say, you know, the song's not ready yet. You know, the lyrics can you know work on this, work on that, and he wouldn't roll tape unless he was comfortable with how the song were was and you know the song and the music and the melody were most important he wasn't really a gearhead when he was studio gear he would like to have cool things to to play with to use but as far as instruments and go he had i was t- telling someone the other day he didn't he didn't never even have like a big guitar collection you know any guitarist in a bar typical bar band would have far many more guitarists he didn't even have a great acoustic guitar in the studio i used to bring mine up when 
you know, we had to do acoustic guitar. He had, you know, just an odd, he had an odd, like a PV bass that was really horrible that <laughs> I think that he used it on bang the drum uh, all day. You know, he just made it work. What you know, he had a, we had a mediocre set of drums, a, a little baby grand or a little bigger than baby grand Yamaha piano that wasn't great, but it wasn't, that wasn't a problem. You know, it wasn't in the instruments and everything, or the, you know, the amps. It was in the in the music, and that's how Todd approached things, which I learned a lot, you know, from from that. You know, you you go into your studio and you and you be creative and inspired, and the music will show that when it's finished. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, and I think we've run out of time, really. But we should uh, thank you for your contr- both of your contributions to such a seminal album, and 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 anticipate the what you're going to do next. And there will be a link that we'll include uh, on the podcast, uh, on the webpage, or wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, for the crowdfunder, so that you can contribute to your very own future, dear God. So thank you very, very, very much indeed to Jasmine, Ralph, and Leslie for having such a fascinating yeah. conversation. It was fun. It was thank great. You. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you. And thanks, Leslie, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it was awesome. What do you call that noise? Thank you once again to Jasmine, Ralph and Leslie and to songwriter Craig Stevens, of course. Many, many thanks to the podcast supporters on Patreon who make it all possible, including the following nights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, Kevin Burt, Kale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Alan Hughes, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlaw, Dennis LeCourier, Liz Lynch, Ian Morris, Yusuf Murrah, Amy Parkinson, Murray Meikle, Karen Neal, Doug Perry, Mark Reed, James Reimer, Simon Slateholm, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, and Nigel Waller. And if you'd like to support the XTC podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. Thank you very, very much for listening. I'll be back again next month with even more XTC goodness. See you then. Bye. Bye.